Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granieri, professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For 50 years, the Eisenhower Series College Program has been the U.S. Army War College's communication and outreach program designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of this dialogue, War College students have traveled across the country speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of corona and social distancing, however, the ESCP has unfortunately had to scale back the travels of our students. Here at A Better Peace, we aim to pick up the slack by giving Eisenhower program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights and to engage in this virtual dialogue with you and the public. Today's podcast is the fourth in an intended series of such episodes. And our topic today is the relationship between the military and higher education in the United States. And our guests today are three members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2020. First, we have Lieutenant Colonel Aaron J. Sadusky, a native of Centerville, Maryland, and a graduate of the United States Military Academy. Lieutenant Colonel Sadusky holds a master's in international public policy from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and is a career field artillery officer with over 20 years of experience, including service as a U.S. Army Interagency Fellow in the 2011-2012 era assigned to the U.S. State Department's Afghanistan desk within the President's Special Representative on Afghanistan and Pakistan. We also have Colonel Eric R. Swenson, who was commissioned in the Army Corps of Engineers after graduating from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in 1998. Colonel Swenson has deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan and served overseas in Germany. He holds a master's and PhD from Penn State in industrial engineering, and upon graduation, he will return to West Point to teach in the Department of Mathematical Sciences. His research interests include healthcare value improvement, the rising cost of DOD healthcare, and its impact on readiness and maintaining the all-volunteer force. And finally, Lieutenant Colonel Melissa Wardlaw attended, the, attended Wright State University, where she received her commission and earned an MBA in 1997. Lieutenant Colonel Wardlaw has served in a variety of command and staff positions to include force manager at the office of the Army Surgeon General, S3 of the 410th Hospital Center, and AMED Recruiting Officer. Welcome to A Better Peace to the three of you, colleagues. Thanks for joining us. I want to start by giving each of the three participants a chance to summarize the topic that they would have spoken of if this were a formal occasion with Eisenhower students. And so, Aaron Sadusky, I'm going to let you go first. Hey, sure. Thanks, Ron. First, thanks for having us. You know, it's a great opportunity to kind of get to talk about something that's important to to me and then obviously up to my peers uh, this afternoon. And so my, my topic was on the case for mandatory national service. 
And the way I kind of got to this or thought this was a relevant topic is, you know, you open any news website these day, you pick a news channel, you, you pick a newspaper up, and it's readily apparent that our nation's pretty divided. And you can, you can talk about that, whether that's economically, politically, socially, whatever. Add to it, information tends to be more like a currency that we trade and manipulate. And all we kind of see is this civic landscape that seems to be, to me, kind of disturbing. Uh, secondly, I see that it's pretty hard to dispute that we also have a growing civilian military divide occurring in our country. And so while we still have our armed forces pulling from all over our nation, we're also starting to see that they kind of come from the same regions, predominantly the South and Southwest, and also families of veterans. So you have the proverbial falling, falling like in your parents' your parents' footprints. So to me, I see our country is kind of drifting apart. And my thought is, is that mandatory national service is a means to help, one, bridge that civ mill divide, two, try to remore ourselves to our national identity, and three, pull us, pull us back together a little bit as Americans. Now, as we have the discussion, I'm sure we can talk about some of the merits, some of the arguments for and against it. I think the big thing up front, always, what I always like to make sure I define, though, is, is that I'm not advocating compulsory military service. I actually think that we, if you want to do that under this, this model of, of mandatory service, that's fine. But I want to make sure that when I'm talking about mandatory national service, we move beyond compulsory military service and we don't dovetail ourselves back into a discussion about bringing back the draft, because I wholeheartedly believe in our all-volunteer force. Up front, I, I think that I think our, our our high school students should do about one year mandatory service after after high school for one year. We can talk about how we would pay for that. And the bottom line, though, is I think that that kind of will create this little bit more of much needed glue in our society that kind of brings us back together. And I think our people are is the strongest part of our nation. And I think mandatory national service will help kind of pull us back together and make us stronger in the end. All right. Well, thanks, Aaron. That's a good thing to get us started. Eric. Good afternoon, Ron. Uh, thanks for having us on. You bet. So today, today I'm going to discuss my thoughts on the viability of the all-volunteer force, something that Aaron just mentioned, and, and really it's been around for about 50 years. So, so in 1973, President Nixon signed the all-volunteer force bill into law. Uh, the U.S. military, since then, the U.S. military has had to rely on volunteers alone to fill its ranks. And for all the benefits a purely volunteer force provides, and, and there are numerous benefits, it, it, did, it did not come without risks. I mean, there were risks associated uh, with, with moving to an all-volunteer force. Uh, today, the demands for high-quality talent, a dwindling propensity to serve, and changing social dynamics in the U.S., uh, I believe, increase the strain on the military, and in particular, the Army, to fill its ranks. Uh, furthermore, the inclusion of women in all combat arms ranks of the, of the military begs the question, is the selective service system, as written into law, still constitutional? And regardless of whether it is, should it be updated to, updated to include women? And two, given the dwindling population of U.S. youth that are even eligible to serve, is the selective service system able to fulfill its mandate uh, as written? So, these are some of the issues that I, I'd like to talk about today, um, and, I, and I have some ideas of how the Army can, can change its recruiting methods uh, to help maintain the viability of all-volunteer all force, given, given some of the challenges in the dwindling propensity to serve and some of the changing social dynamics. Great. So, look forward to it. 
All right. Thank you, Eric. Melissa. Yes. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for having us on today. I uh, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to, to be on this podcast. So what I wanted to talk about today is related to both uh, Aaron and Eric's topic. So um, while we're all on here together, basically uh, the, what I believe should happen is a uh, free 13th and 14th grade. So the ability for the U.S. to protect itself around the world depends on our economy. And frankly, the U.S. is not keeping pace in this information age. And it is primarily due to an underperforming educational system. So uh, the U.S. understood that finishing high school was really essential in 1965 when President Johnson signed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act into law. And at that time it really helped us, our economy surge past other countries. And I believe that we're in another inflection point today uh, where at least two years of college is essential. In fact, uh, 90% of the jobs created between 2009 and 2018 went to workers with at least some college education. And at the same time, uh, there has been a, a cut uh, deep cuts in higher education funding by the states. So it is, we're at a time where the benefit of college has never been greater, but it's less affordable. Therefore, I propose that we offer a free 13th and 14th grade that counts towards college credits. So these students have technically graduated high school, but they're not given diplomas, which will allow them to have the eligibility for state funding for tuition, books, and fees. So in return, um, sort of uh, building on Aaron's topic is the students would owe two years of either military or civil service in return to the nation. And I, I do believe that this will also close the civil gap that we current that currently exists in the U.S. Mm. So I look forward to uh, you know the further discussion on this topic. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you to the three of you for, uh, and I know that, uh, that if in a, in a normal circumstances, right, you would get a chance to speak in greater detail, but I'm hoping we can draw out in our conversation uh, in the next 20 minutes or so of, of some of the implications of what you're talking about. Because what I, what I hear when I hear each of the three of you is the suggestion that there are things that we're missing um, as a society or that we're missing in our students and their preparation. And I guess the, uh, the, the big question, the first big question that comes to mind is, you know, in what ways uh, are we uh, as a society right now, when I think about how we're, how we're staffing the military, how we are, uh, how we're educating people, um, where exactly are we falling short? And do we think that placing greater requirements on 17 and 18 year olds um, is going to solve the problem that the problems that we see? Um, I want to I want to go back to you to start off with Aaron on this issue of, you know, if we if we feel like the country is drifting apart, um, uh, do we think that we can really pull the country back together by uh, by essentially putting restrictions on the lives of our 18 year old high school graduates and saying you can't start your life until you make up for the fact that uh, that the generation that came before you has failed to hold the country together? I, I phrase that provocatively because I wanted really get us started. But let's, let's uh, think about that. If we've, we've had 50 years of all volunteer force and no draft, and now we're going to say, sorry, kids, um, your parents and grandparents messed all this up. And so now we're going to restrict your freedom to fix it. 
What do you think about that? So, Ron, I think it's I think it's interesting, and I um I, I think that's a very interesting question because it depends who you ask. And and I mm-hmm. totally unscientific polling, but when I road tested this idea of mandatory national service in a couple of the high schools that that I um, took some Q and A from, and you mm-hmm. know regionally, one some were in outside of Pittsburgh, well-to-do area, and then others were in and around the Baton Rouge area, uh, in in and near. So that state cap Louisiana and then in and around Louisiana State University. And surprisingly, most of them thought it was actually a pretty good idea because I think we find a lot of youth at that age really not sure what they want to do. One. Mm-hmm. Two, those that aren't quite ready to go to college, they understand this kind of goes to what Melissa was saying is, is that they also don't want to just incur this huge debt up front and then in something that they may not want to do. So I I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily something that it's that they have to fix this divide. I, mm-hmm. I think one of the things when you talk about um, the millennial generation, a lot of them want some kind of fulfillment out of the work that they're doing and not feel like they're just going to be a cog in the machine. And, and surprisingly, I was kind of pleasantly surprised that a lot of them said, yeah, I, you know, I could do this for a year. Um, mm-hmm. the, on the flip side, the other part you said in the first part of your question, though, I thought that was interesting is where are we falling short? I'd say I'd say we're yeah. falling short in two things. The first thing is we're falling short in trust. And I'm going to answer that from the Civ Mill side of this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Harvard Harvard's Institute of Politics put out a recent survey, 18, 24 year olds in the last 12 months. And they said trust in the US military has actually decreased from 54% down to about 47%. And to me, that's pretty telling, right? As career military officers, the younger generation, the future of our country, less than 50% say they, they, they trust in the military. Now, when you, when you take that society wide, you know, our trust is still up there around 70%. So, and some of that's because there's less less connection to them. You know, mm-hmm. we live on bases, and where we're pulling from is the same thing. The second thing I also think you got to look at is, is there's a gap in we don't have, we have less elites serving. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's research out there that says hey you know back in the 50s half of Princeton's graduating class went to service, and by by the turn of the century nine you know and that that's that's disheartening. So anyway, so bringing it back together, mm-hmm. the, my thought on national services, you got to put people back together and make them work together. Because when you when you put people in stressful situations, barriers come down, you start to look at diversity and how you tackle problems. And in essence, I think that's one of those ways. I don't I don't think we look at it as a burden that we're putting on this the the millennial generation, but rather an opportunity to shape right. our nation in a positive way. All right. Well that's a that's a that's a good way to put it. I mean it is an interesting question about you know our trust in institutions in this country, because you could say that trust in the military is going down, but the military seems to be way out in front of everybody else, right? I don't know what the uh either the the nation's trust in uh you know university faculty, for example, is, let alone members of Congress or used car salesmen or uh, other things. So that that interesting question of the United, the military tends to be out in front when it comes to trust, but but even that's declining. I want to bring you in here, uh, Melissa, because um, I'm I'm intrigued by this idea of of adding, uh, you know what uh, what uh, Aaron was talking about, essentially one year of service, and you were suggesting adding two years of education. And um, I don't want to get uh, lost in the practical weeds here, but I am curious why do you think why do you think two years would be the appropriate uh, time to take people after they've finished 12th grade. Right. So basically I'm looking at a year for year. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm proposing a 13th and 14th grade. We are in a, in a global, um, you know, world where modernization is modernization of our military, uh, 
the technical jobs have increased, uh, you know, fourfold. And I, I truly believe that we need to have our high schools are not prepared our students to where they need to be to, uh, you know, receive a middle income level job. Mm -hmm. uh, the high school used to be able to provide that. Uh, now they they definitely need at least some type of of, of you know higher education. And in the military, uh, you know, we have the creation of the Space Force. We have increase in attention of cyber infrastructure and drones, unmanned aerial vehicles. The uh, F-35 is highly technical. And I'm not so sure that our, our citizens are ready for those type of uh, highly technical jobs. Right. And I also believe that our students are going to look at, or our, our young citizens are going to look at protecting our homeland more than we ever have before, especially after this pandemic, uh, where the military has, um, you know, fought overseas. And that's where our, our foreign policy has uh, shown its attention to. And I think that they're going to want to protect our homeland a little bit more. And uh, to do that, um, I, I think that part of that could be the civil service and not just a military service. And, uh, you know, we can put those folks to work within our borders to help pay back for the amount that they're uh, funding for the 13th. Of mm -hmm. And and so the idea is that the, the this is, it was what it sounds like you're saying is, is that you're essentially requiring students to go to community college, right? Cause this is two years of, of post-secondary education, but with curricula that would be somehow more geared towards um, specific aspects of Homeland Security or, or would, would students be required to be picking technical subjects? Yeah, no, that's exactly uh, the, the path I was taking on this. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, other countries have done, done it. Some of the states in New York, Oregon have looked into this, have started, uh, you know, the going forward on that path. And I just believe if we took it on instead of at, at the state level, took it on at the national level, um, it, it would create, you know, two things for us. It would create more of a, a, a national identity and, um, and it would also help get our skills to where it needs to be in the global world. Okay. Well then, and this of course leads me then to you, Eric Swenson, to talk about this idea is if we feel like the all volunteer force is uh, running up against uh, real, real practical limits. We can't, uh, we can't necessarily attract students with the, uh, with the skills that we want, or we can't attract enough of a broad segment of the population. So then what, uh, what comes after the all-volunteer force? Well, Ron, that's a great question. I, I think I'd like to just go back and sort of tie mine into what Melissa said. Please. With this, this 13th and 14th grade. You know, I think about a dozen states in the union right now have a, a free college, basically a free college for all mm -hmm. program. It's, it's normally a promissory type scholarship or a, a last dollar scholarship that once all your federal aid goes in, students or uh, states pick up the difference between the cost of a community college uh, education and what they can get through, say, Pell Grants. And so, so that's already happening. And, and in the last administration, with some of our you know, presidential uh, candidates, uh, this, this go around, this, this election cycle, I've already talked about free college for all and whether, and whether it, you know, we could do something um, where, the, where the federal government picks up the tab to send, to send people to either a, th a two or a four-year degree. 
I, I think mm-hmm. what what I found in my research is that although that would be helpful in in the sense of raising the education level and, and improving our workforce, the challenge we've seen in, in say Tennessee, where a recent study was done, it actually showed that when you offer these these scholarships, these last dollar scholarships, uh, it actually decreases enlistment in the military. So it it, mm-hmm. it, it undermines our ability to recruit uh, the all volunteer force. And and some some of the challenges that we have with the all volunteer force, if if you go back to to the early seventies under the Gates Commission, which was the commission that Nixon set up to study whether we could move to an all volunteer force, one of the assumptions they had was that we'd always be able to recruit enough youth. To, to join the military if we provided enough incentives. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time, uh, the, the commission estimated that about 70% of youth in America were, were eligible to serve. doesn't mean they had the propensity to serve or, or the willingness to serve, but at least they, they were mentally fit, they were physically fit, they didn't have a criminal, criminal background, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And over the years, we've, we've raised the standards for eligibility into the all-volunteer force, which is, which is paid dividends uh, in the quality of, of uh, enlistees that we get. Um, but the, the, the downside, uh, is, well, a couple of downsides. One of them is that the, even though we've gotten some, some better quality, uh, the requirements as most, I think mentioned have gone up as well with cyber and space, some aviation requirements, the, the aptitude that we require some of those enlistees to have has gone up, uh, and it's made it harder and, and youth have options, um, these days. So if you're a, if you're in that, uh, eligible group of people that dwindling, but eligible group of people that can join, you, you have options. You're being recruited by, by lots of people. And in 2019, the army uh, did a study and said that about 29% of the youth in America today are eligible to serve. So in 50 years, you know, we've kind of gone from somewhere between 70% to 30% or 29%. And, and that's a challenge. The, the pool of people uh, that, are, that we believe are eligible that meet the high quality that we want is, is dwindling. Uh, which which undermines uh, the army, in particular the army's ability to recruit enough soldiers each year uh, to fill our, our all volunteer ranks. And so there's some things we need to do, I think, to to, to adjust that. Sure, sure. Well, I was I was just thinking about this. You know, I'm of I'm of the age where I grew up in the era of the all volunteer force, but also we could say for the first 20 years of the all volunteer force, uh, the U.S. Army, the U.S. military. Uh, deployed to deployed to uh, actual military confrontations relatively rarely, but in the last twenty years, um, we've been kind of on the job every year. And the problem of all of those incentives that were offered to young people to volunteer, job training, money for college, um, that was all kind of appealing when it was just the idea that you're putting your life on hold for a couple of years, you're wearing a uniform, you've got to wear a shorter haircut, you've got to follow orders, but that um, you were going to be relatively safe. And at the end of those two years, you could go back to your civilian life. Um, Is the problem not only a matter of recruitment, but it's also a matter of United States foreign and security policy that we are, our military is being expected to do a lot more fighting uh, lately than it has for a while. And can we, is it, in other words, is the problem not that the volunteer force is the problem? The problem is that you can't use a volunteer force and be engaged in uh, constant warfare around the world. Um, I throw that open to all three of you, but go ahead, Eric, you go first. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's where we see the propensity to serve is down. And mm-hmm. I think some of the components of propensity to serve is the number of veterans that we have living in America is, is on the decline. The number of veterans we have serving in, in say, Congress is on the, on the decline. Um, 
the high op tempo, operational tempo, which is a term we use in the military to describe how basically how busy we are. As mm-hmm. you had mentioned, over the past 20 years, you know, we have been we have had soldiers engaged uh, in multiple conflicts uh, around the world, nearly uh, nonstop. And I think at last count, the, the U.S. military has something like 200,000 soldiers uh, in some form or fashion, you know, serving around the world right now. So, so military service today, me for many for many in the military means that you're going to spend some time away from home, which if you're trying to use the military to get to college uh, and you have high aptitude, you you may have options that can provide you an education without uh, signing up for military service, which those options may not have existed, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Right. Well, and hey, Aaron, and, can I and, follow up after you? Oh, please do, Aaron. Go right ahead. No. So, so I think Eric makes a good point. One of the things I think what we also are talking about is in terms of what's what's the talent pool and is it evolving with you know the character of warfare um mm-hmm. you know do we need do we need traditional infantry men and women and do they bring the exact same skill sets for people that are going to compete in the cyber domain or bio or you know nanotechnology or development of hypersonics i mean i think one of the things that the army is still struggling is defining and messaging to the public who we want to bring in. You're, we're always going to have, and I, I agree with what both of you gentlemen have talked about in terms of there's always going to be a demand for this um, talent pool of high intensity conflict. But I think, but I think we also have placed new demands on our military that are evolving beyond that. And so maybe the, some of the folks that we're trying to bring in are not going to be your, your, your most highly graded out physical fitness folks, but at the same time, they bring a different skill set because if, if they can hack into anything in the world, well, that's a unique skill set that we may want to use um, for military means as well. So I just, mm-hmm. I think, I think there's the pool and this, this idea is we're all fighting for the same pool of talent and how is the military going to compete to, to recruit that? I, I think some of the changes that the, that Congress has given us in the uh, 2019 NDAA allows us to do that in terms mm-hmm. of bringing folks in and, and looking beyond this 20 year career model so that we can kind of let folks, you know, as we have certain demands, try to bring people in. And then when they want to leave and go do something else, they can go do something else. So I just, I think that the pool and some of the recruits and how we're looking at this problem may have to evolve as well. Well, and, and I think that's a, that's a really good way to put it because one of the, one of the ideas, one of the problems with the draftee with the, with the universal military services, if you have people who all know that they're coming in and a large percentage of them are only going to serve for the minimum amount of time that they've been drafted for, it's one thing to have them serve as, uh, uh, as, as relatively low-level recruits in a, an infantry battalion, for example, as opposed to wanting to find a young person who has real skills, uh, specific skills. And, and how, and I guess this is where, and I want to come back to you um, on this, Melissa, is the, the problem with our, the relationship between our military and our educational system, right? The military has promised to offer young people a degree of practical training, right? You know, you can graduate high school, but if you really want to learn how to become a mechanic, if you really want to learn aerospace, you really want to learn a kind of technology, you come, you join the service, you work in, in that, and then either you stay in the service or you go off and, and use those skills. In what ways should them, and how do we balance the the different ideas of the the military wanting to uh, offer the chance to gain skills for young people versus the military seeking to find the young people who already have the skills that the military needs? 
And what is the educational role of the military in this stage, especially at that basic recruit level when we think of that 18 to 22-year-old recruit? Yes, right. Uh, that's that's a very good question. Um, I actually thought about that. And I think that if we offer the 13th and 14th grade, that they can prov- they will uh, receive some of that uh, education. So it will lessen the burden on the military uh, to... I, I can imagine that the I, AIT, the tech schools, are going to be longer to, uh, you know, provide the type of training that you're talking about in the, in the, uh, you know, high information type of, uh, you know, uh, military that we're going into. If you look at the, uh, the future of 2035 military, it's very futuristic, and mm-hmm. I do believe that it will decrease the amount of, and the military can also get involved in some of the curriculum. I'm not saying that they would, you know, it would be overbearing, but they can provide some input on what, you know, our nation needs to, to protect itself. I also think that it will decrease the defense budget and spending in the GI Bill, uh, which right now is about $11 billion in annual federal uh, support and $485 million in tuition assistant funding. It will decrease that. So I, I think that the relationship with the education and the military, uh, I, I just see nothing but benefits. And when you were talking about, I'm just going to pivot a little bit. to sure. the, Go right ahead. The, okay. So the prior question about how the military has fought on foreign soil. And as I mentioned before, I really do think that we need those forces over there, but in a very limited uh, um, you know, scope. So, you know, some of our, our vital interest, uh, you know, NATO protecting Eastern Europe from Russia, uh, perhaps deterring conflict in Asia, those type of things are things that we still need to do. But perhaps we can uh, lessen the amount that we have in the Middle East, um, you know, some parts of the Pacific where there's just not a whole lot of vital interest and focus more on our homeland. Mm-hmm. And and I think that our young um, students that are coming out of college are Thinking in the same way, uh, when I think about the military in this new pan- COVID-19 pandemic, you know, I, I think that that's what they're going to uh, request and require our military to focus, you know, more on the homeland. And also, I, I think that the younger generation is also more open to social programs and expanding the democracy in social realms and not just political realm. So the idea is, is that we can find a way to to draw on the desire of young people to make a contribution to society. Yes, in yes. a way that and and that that contribution can be uh, can be in uniform, can be out of uniform, but that there should be a kind of fluid sense of uh, of what national service means, so that people can do what they what they what their skills best allow them to do to serve the country. Exactly. Very well said. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, well, and and I'm I'm there are so many other uh, threads to pull on here, right? The relationship between military policy and larger national security policy. The question of what, how does the United States rethink its vital national interests that need to be served by the military uh, in the future in an era after uh, COVID? And you know, so much of what the Eisenhower program is built to do is to give a chance for. Uh, students here at the War College to not only to reflect on these on the relationship with uh, between the civilian and military society, but also to make their contribution to it. And while uh, I'd love for uh, for all of you to have the chance to speak in front of as many audiences as possible, I'm afraid that this conversation for today has to come to an end. Uh, 
Um, but it's been a real pleasure to get us all started thinking about the ways that we uh, imagine the role of young people uh, in building a better society for the future and the role of the military in helping young people to do that. I want to thank uh, Aaron Sadusky, Eric Swenson, and Melissa Wardlaw for joining us here on A Better Peace. Uh, so thanks so much to the three of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And I want to thank all of you for listening in. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation. I hope it's piqued your interest in the Eisenhower program in the students we have here at the War College and in questions of national service. I hope that you will tune in to future conversations on A Better Peace so that you can hear more about how we talk about these kinds of questions here. Um, please send us your suggestions for future programs and your comments on this one. Um, and please, if you listen to A Better Peace, please subscribe to it on your, the podcatcher of your choice. And please rate and review this podcast so that others may find their way to it as well. Uh, we look forward to seeing you here uh, on a better piece in the near future. But until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.